Appreciate you being here. We are in a series of lessons from the life of Hezekiah, and uh, we find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 19 this evening. I hope you latched on to an outline as you came in. Uh, this is really the conclusion of a story that we started last week. We saw the three representatives of King Sennacherib of Assyria as they made their way to Jerusalem to, uh, to provide a dose of intimidation to try and force the king of Judah to surrender without a fight. Uh, as overwhelmingly confident as the Rabshakeh, the secretary of state of Assyria, seemed to be as he trash-talked against Hezekiah and Hezekiah's God, the fact of the matter is, even with a mighty army, uh, they would much rather take a city without opposition than to have to do battle. Well, what we're going to see tonight is, uh, is the conclusion of that story. I called last week's lesson, Facing Fear and Intimidation. And we, without over-spiritualizing the historical events of these chapters, the fact is the enemy has always uh, followed those same patterns. He tries to intimidate. He tries to uh, get us to surrender without a fight. Um, fortunately, Hezekiah was, uh, was a man who understood how to follow God. I've said on your outline, the key to victory in life is the discernment to recognize the spiritual nature of every battle and the willingness to engage the battle with spiritual means. In other words, when we walk through life, part of the battle is simply recognizing the spiritual elements of what we face. People say, well, I've got this problem, I've got that problem, I've got some other problem. Uh, and, and they don't pause long enough to consider uh, what might be going on in that, in that circumstance, in that crisis. Uh, the Bible teaches us that sometimes God allows things that are ultimately for our good as they uh, press us into maturity, as they train us to, uh, to rely on Him. Uh, sometimes they are attacks from the enemy. We refer to that as spiritual warfare. Uh, but you, you can't win a battle against an enemy if you never realize that you're actually in a battle with an enemy. And there are a lot of Christians who go through their daily lives um, without a clear recognition that there is someone out there who hates you. I'm not talking about your neighbor up the street or, or somebody at your workplace. I'm talking about uh, the accuser of the brothers. He hates you because you bear the marks of Jesus Christ and he hates Jesus above all others. Well, Hezekiah uh, is going to provide us a model here as he faces not just the intimidation that Assyria uh, threatened him with, but the actual army itself. So there was a, an intimidation. There was a, there was a, uh, a bluster there. But this particular bluster was, in fact, backed up by a real army. So let's go to the 19th chapter of, of 2 Kings and, and, and pick this story up. Uh, it's a very simple outline, our part and God's part. And we're going to see Hezekiah uh, display that as we work through this chapter. Um, 
our part is recognizing spiritual battle, seeing the source of our help. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Now when, now when King Hezekiah heard the report, that is, when his three representatives who had gone to the wall came back with the news of what the Assyrian representatives had delivered, this challenge not only to the people of Jerusalem, but to the king, but also to the king's God. When he heard the report, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. We left him, in a sense, last week on his knees praying, and that's where we pick up here again. Um, I find it interesting that, uh, that we're going to see in Hezekiah, this is the greatest military challenge of his rule, of his time as king. But he's not even tempted to call for politicians or advisors he doesn't need a war council or, or a military strategist. He doesn't need a fortune teller. He needs a word from God. And we're going to see that as he goes into the temple to pray, he calls to his credit. He calls on a prophet who is mentioned here for the first time. Uh, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament mentioned here for the first time. He calls for somebody who can bring him a word from God. Um, I, I took a little encouragement here because, um, you know, Isaiah hasn't been, is, is the prophet that's going to be mentioned in the next couple of verses. Um, he hasn't been mentioned up until this time, even though he's been a prophet uh, for some time now. He was a prophet at, to the palace, to the, uh, to the royal house of Judah before Hezekiah. Uh, this is the first time that he is, is presented but I, I took a little encouragement there because it dawned on me that there are, and I know this because I talk to them, there are a lot of pastors and, and people who, uh, particularly over the last couple of years of pandemic, uh, they've been faithful, they've served their church, and they just, they just wonder if they're making any difference at all. And, and I, I find it encouraging that, that Isaiah's been here all along, but... When the king needs a word from God, he knows where to go because there was a faithful prophet that he knew walked with God. And I've tried to encourage some of these, some of these particularly younger pastors to say, I just don't know if I'm doing any good. Well, you just keep being faithful. And at the right moment, people will know where to turn. When they sense the desperation of their situation, they'll know where to go. That's what happens here. Verse 2, Hezekiah sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the household, with Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. <coughs> they said to him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and humiliation. For children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to deliver them. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to taunt the living God, and will avenge the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, This is what you shall say to your master. The Lord says this, Do not be fearful because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that he will hear news 
and return to his land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. All right, let's talk about these first seven verses. I love the fact that, first of all, I love the fact that Hezekiah sent word to Isaiah. Pray for us. He went to, he went to a spiritual authority because more than any strategists or military thinkers, he didn't need his generals. He needed somebody who could deliver an authoritative word from God about what to do. But I love that when he went to, there's, we've seen this before in, in other kings, uh, some of the bad kings that we find in the Old Testament, they'll occasionally send for a prophet. But what they're looking for is a prophet to give them a favorable word that will confirm what the king has already decided to do. They're not looking for an authoritative direction from God. They're looking for sort of a divine imprimatur that just says, you know, you're fine, just do what you're doing. Um, the reason I know that, that Hezekiah was, was more sincere than those other kings is we see it, um, we see it in verse 4. In the message that he sends to Isaiah, he says this, Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to taunt the living God, and will avenge the words which the Lord your God has heard. Notice what he didn't ask. Go find Isaiah and find out what's going to happen to us. What did he say? Go find Isaiah and see if the Lord heard what those pagans said about him. Even facing the threat of this army, which is massive in size, Hezekiah's concern is for the name of the righteous God of Israel. I love that because it tells me something about Hezekiah's character. It ultimately wasn't about safety in battle. It was about, it was about the reputation and the name of the true God. I told you last week when we, when we read all those, that, that whole speech that the Rob Shaka delivers, you know, first of all, he says, don't, don't let your king trick you. Don't trust your God. I mean, uh, I mean, none of the other gods of any of the other nations have been able to stop the Assyrian army. This king is the most powerful force uh, on the earth. So, so don't put your trust in gods because we've, we've got a whole trophy case of gods that we've defeated and then tucked away. But then he said, and another reason that you should surrender is because your God sent us here. Well, listen, one of the things that you learn if you read the Old Testament enough is that God takes a dim view of people claiming his authority when he hasn't granted that authority. We usually see that in prophets. God will say, this is a prophet who has said, thus saith the Lord, when I have not said that. And God takes that personally. We, we understand that one of the commandments is not to, to take the name of the, of the Lord thy God in vain. And, and we all grew up thinking that that just meant don't use cuss words. Listen, when you speak... And say, God, and, and, and we do this, uh, we do this almost flippantly. 
we say, well, uh, this happens to me. Well, pastor, um, we're going to leave the church. Um, we're not being fed. That's that sort of standard. That's kind of standard. I, I, I got a preacher here. I can get a witness. You know, uh, well, I'm not being fed. Really? Like, you mean like you're not being fed one meal a week or you're not being fed all week? Because all week is not my job. You got to learn how to feed yourself. Well, I'm, I'm not being fed, but, but really God has told us to leave. And I always say this, I go, really? Where is God sending you? Well, we don't have that worked out yet. Well, then this is not God. Because God doesn't send you out into the wilderness to wander around. It's possible for God to say, I deployed you here and I'm going to deploy you over there. But he'll, he'll tell you where you're going. You don't just leave and wander. You don't church shop for a year. That's not God. But you see, when you, when you told me, when you say, God told me to do this, if God didn't really tell you, I should be able to say, well, well show me in Scripture where he told you that. Well, it's just really a feeling that I have. Okay, well, there's a commandment about taking the name of the Lord in vain. And one of the ways we do that is we say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. Now, I don't want this to sound like I'm, like I'm bitter. I'm, I'm not. I'm just talking from, from, from years of experience. Don't tell me the Lord told you to do something unless you can show me from the Word of God where the Lord told you to do it. Because that's not how God works. I say, well, I've got an open door. Well, you know, God's not the only one that knows how to open doors. Circumstances alone are not the way you determine the direction of God. I love this, this passage because Hezekiah here is concerned with the Lord, and he understands that what the Rabshaka said was nothing short of blasphemy. Now, he can talk about those other gods. Hezekiah doesn't care about the other gods because they're not real gods. They're gods made out of wood. You know, that, the, the, the absurdity. The, the Old Testament often talks about the absurdity of taking a tree and chopping it down and fashioning it with, with your skills of, of whittling and carving and shaping it into the shape of some animal or, or animal-human hybrid, and then putting it on the mantel place and bowing down, <clears throat> bowing down and praying to it. I mean, that doesn't make sense to anybody who steps back and goes, but, but wait, yesterday that was a tree out in the backyard. That's the gods that the Assyrian king was boasting about. They weren't real gods. He had no idea what he was about to get into because the trash talking he was doing to this God is going to come back and haunt him. And Hezekiah says, perhaps the Lord will hear those words because he was taunting not me, he was taunting him. Well, before I go past it, verse 3, I skipped over that, but that's, that's probably a proverb <clears throat> that was common in the day. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. I think that was a proverb that, that simply meant um, 
uh, we've exhausted ourselves so that we can't bring to completion whatever the project is that we've tried. Here, uh, Hezekiah has rebelled against Assyria, but Assyria is on the horizon now. They're coming with their army. Uh, Hezekiah is basically affirming that, uh, that without God stepping into this situation, uh, we, we can't get out of this. It's a, a recognition on his part that, that God was necessary. <clears throat> the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah has a word. <clears throat> he's already, he, certainly he's already prayed about this. So he says, this is what you shall say to your master. The Lord says this. Now that is, in King James, you would find that, that phrase, thus saith the Lord. That's what this Hebrew phrase is right here. He, Isaiah is speaking authoritatively because he is an actual true prophet of the true God. So his word carries weight because it comes from the Lord. Do not be fearful because of the words that you heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So God did hear. And then he says, what's going to happen? I'm going to put a spirit in him so that he will hear news and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Okay. Uh, mark that verse because God doesn't ever make a prophecy that doesn't eventually come true. We'll come back to that. Now look at verse 18. Uh, we're we're going to, Syria is going to step back into the story. Um, but we're going to have to see beyond the intimidation. Verse 8 says, Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say about Tirhaka, king of Cush, Behold, he has come out to fight you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, This is what you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by saying, Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Behold, you yourself have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be saved? Did the gods of the nations which my fathers destroyed save them? Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the sons of Eden were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath? the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, and of Hena and Iva. Now, what's happening here? Well, let me give you the history. Last week, we saw that these three representatives had come on behalf of the king of Sennacherib, but Sennacherib, with the army, had laid siege to a city called Lachish. In fact, uh, I mentioned that that was one of the great victories of Sennacherib's reign, and there were two entire walls of his palace uh, in the capital city devoted to drawings and paintings of that great victory. Well, when he finishes at Lachish, he comes and he's probably on his way to come to follow up with Hezekiah, but something happens on the way there. At this moment in history, the Egyptian empire has been defeated by, uh, by a nation that was made up. If you look on a modern-day map and you see Egypt in, in North Africa, if you go south of Egypt, you'll see Sudan. And if you kind of go east from Sudan, you'll see Ethiopia. Okay? In this historical time period... There was a kingdom 
known as Cush. Cush was basically uh, Sudan and Ethiopia, those modern-day nations, just south and east of Egypt. Egypt had fallen to this kingdom, and so for a short period of time, uh, when, when Egypt comes up in the Bible, uh, it, it, it's really not Egypt, it's referred to as Cush because, because that kingdom overthrew Egypt for a time. Egypt eventually uh, rebels and, and is back on the world stage. But at this moment, uh, that nation of Cush is in charge of Egypt. While Sennacherib is besieging, laying siege to Lachish, an army from the, from the, the, the nation of Cush marches out to challenge the Assyrian king. Okay, the Cushites were never as powerful, I think, as they thought. But, but like Egypt, they often, that part of the world often considered themselves to be one of the superpowers. And so there's a, there's a battle coming. So in this verse, it says, um, verse 9, after he left, the king left he was fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say about Tirhakah, king of Cush, behold, he has come out to fight you. All right, the Cush army is, uh, is coming to assault the Assyrians. Now, there was a loose connection between Hezekiah and, and this kingdom. They, were, they weren't formal allies, but it's kind of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. So the Cush army intervenes here well the assyrian king has to divert from heading to judah because he has to face this challenge so because he's now sidetracked and he has to win this battle against this upstart nation uh, that's why he's he sends the rabshaka the secretary of state back to jerusalem a second time basically to deliver the same message of intimidation because he's not going to get there as quickly as, uh, as he had originally planned. So if he's not going to get there quickly enough, he just wants to keep the level of, of fear and trembling at, at, at a fever pitch. And so he sends the Rabshakeh back. He doesn't say anything new. I mean, he says the same thing that he said in, in the last chapter. Uh, but, but basically, he's just making the argument that uh, don't trust your king. Don't let him convince you that your God can save you because none of the other gods worked out for those nations. So he reviews the conquest that Sennacherib has had. He demands surrender. And Hezekiah immediately approaches God. Verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it and went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Now, this is one seriously awesome verse. The first time he gets the report of what the representatives of the king of Assyria had, had said, he, he calls for encouragement uh, from Isaiah. Well, Isaiah has delivered what the Lord said. Well, Hezekiah now has a biblical revelation that God is going to act on their behalf and that Sennacherib is not going to succeed in his attack against Jerusalem. So here, instead of going back to Isaiah, Hezekiah goes into the temple and takes the letter. I love this. 
he takes the letter and spreads it out so that God can see it. God, I know you heard them. I want to make sure that you've read what they wrote. This is the heart of the matter. Verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, Lord God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to taunt the living God. This is the heart of the matter. It's not about us. It's about the honor due the God of glory who spoke the entire cosmos into existence by the power of His Word. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. I love it. He says, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim. That is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. It had those, those uh, sculpted, or, or what's the word, they, with, with gold, they'd shaped it. The cherubim were the angels that were on the top of the Ark of the Covenant that formed what was called the mercy seat, the throne where God was, was said to, to dwell when He was there among His people. It was kept in the Holy of Holies, the secret place in the temple. In other words, Hezekiah is calling on the God who sits on the throne and rules the world. Sennacherib on his best day is a pale shadow of the king of the universe. You remember, you remember when Hezekiah put together that ragtag army earlier in the story and assembled them in the in the square there in the center of Jerusalem. And he said, we, we have more than they have. What are you talking about? We're going to find out that their army had 185,000 soldiers. I mean, we're not talking about some minor incursion of some uh, third-rate uh, world power. We're talking about the greatest superpower of the day in that generation 185,000 soldiers. And here is this militia that's been armed with just the weapons that they've been able to make in a short little time as they've tried to prepare. And here's the king saying, we have more than they have. What are you talking about? We have the true God. Okay, what he said to his army in the city of Jerusalem is what he's confessing in his prayer in chapter 19. To the true God, the God of Israel, who sits enthroned between and above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. That's the heart of the matter. So here's the plea. Incline your ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to taunt the living God. 
I talked last week in Truth Currents about the spiritual weapon of prayer that is mostly left unused by modern American Christians. We live in a day and a time of, I think, unprecedented corruption, of ungodly leadership, of our nation is in danger because of the people who are in charge. And, 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 and don't hear me say that thinking that I'm just taking a swipe at Democrats. I mean all of them. What are we going to do about it? Well, we're, we're going to vote at midterm elections. Okay, fine. I'm going to vote at the midterm elections too. That's not the answer. Well, we're going to protest. Okay, go protest. That's not the answer. Well, we're going to we're, we're going to register voters. Okay, let's go register some voters. That's not the answer. The answer, figuratively speaking, is right there in front of us. To put on some sackcloth and ashes, meaning an attitude of repentance and grieving. And come into the house of the Lord and say, Lord, open your eyes to see these men and women who lead us. Lord, open your ears and hear what they have to say that, that challenges the very order of creation that you spoke into existence. Lord, they blaspheme you and laugh about it. Remember I said the first part of any battle is recognizing the spiritual nature of it? Christians are all caught up in what we call the culture wars, not realizing that the culture wars are spiritual wars. And we're leaving our best weapons behind. I'm going to follow that up this week with, with another truth currents. And I'm going to talk about a weapon that we are absolutely scared to death to use. Tune in. <laughs> he pleads for God to hear. And he lists the complaint. Verse 17. It is true, Lord... The kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have hurled their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but only the work of human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. It's true. What they said is true as far as it goes. They have defeated all of those nations. They have thrown their gods into the fire. But that doesn't bother me because they were never real gods to begin with. You throw a wooden god into the fire, you know what you have? Firewood. Which is what you had all along. It just hadn't been burned yet. And so he says this. But now, Lord our God, please save us from his hand. Now, there it is. You think, oh, wait a minute. I thought you said he wasn't, he wasn't going to be concerned about themselves. Here he is making a plea 
that, that God step in on their behalf and save them in this battle. But you got to see why he, he prays it. Lord our God, please save us from his hand so that, we've talked about this many times, man, anytime you see so that in the Bible, you got to circle it because that is a, that is a clear indication that something is going to happen in order for something else to happen. Save us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. You know, what if we were more concerned that the world see God act and move in a mighty way because it would strengthen the world's understanding of who he is? A lot of times we're praying that we want God to act because we want him to make our world more comfortable. Lord, we've got to fix all these problems because it's really messing up my comfort zone. No, it's always been about him. And it's never been about us. When, when, Moses, when Moses meets with God and, and asks a, a special favor, He prays in Exodus chapter 33, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God has, in that conversation, that's that's where, of course, you know, that's the scene where God says, well, you can't see my face, I'll let you see my back. So he puts him in a, a cleft of the rock there in the cliff and he covers him over with his hand. But in that conversation, God has said, You take these people and you go on up. I'm not going to go with you. Because they're stiff-necked people. They're they're rebellious. They're disobedient. And if I go with you, chances are I'm going to end up destroying them. So I'm I'm not going to proceed the rest of the way. You take them and, and go on without me. Now, I think God was waiting to see what what Moses's response would be. You know. And Moses comes through with, with flying colors because he says, he says, he prays to God and he says, if you're not going to go with us, don't you let us take one step from this place. And then he says the most remarkable thing. He says, if you don't go with us, how will the rest of the world know that we are your people? In other words, Moses was saying there is literally nothing at all that makes us different from all the other people in the world except one thing, and that is the presence of our God. What if we begin to pray? Lord, hear and see what's going on. We know he does. But he's waiting for us to call him into our our situation. Not so that we can have things back the way they were. Not so that we can rewind the clock. So so we can be in a a, a, a generation where Christians are are respected and and kind of the, the alpha dog that call all the shots. You see, we're fighting the culture wars because we aren't comfortable now. 
But most of us would be content if we could just get the culture to revert to when we were comfortable. God's never been interested in our comfort. In fact, our comfort is one of the very things that has made the church so weak in the current situation. But if we quit praying for God to solve the culture wars so we could get back to having it easier, and we begin to pray, God, do something among your church in the lives of your people so that the world would know that you are the true God. What if it wasn't about us? What if it was a cry for God to make himself known in such an unmistakable way that the world would recognize him for who he was? That's the motivation for Hezekiah's prayer. He wants God to have the honor and the glory that is rightfully his. Well, God's part. Starting in verse 20, we're going to see that God's part is directing human history. Isaiah is going to, um, is going to give a, a complete uh, revelation from the Lord from, from 2 Kings 19, beginning in verse 21, all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, well, through 20, verse 28, 21 through 28. This is uh, poetry. Maybe in your Bible it's set off. You can tell that it's uh, presented in a different way. It has more um, uh, indentations. That's a mark of poetry. Uh, poetry was a common way that the prophets would often speak a message from God, partly because the, the rhyme and the meter of poetry made a message easier to memorize. And so poetry was often utilized in, in the Hebrew. Uh, it, it's not like English poetry. It doesn't always rhyme. It's more about the meter, the flow. But, but that meter, the, the, the number of syllables and and the way it's presented, it facilitated memorization. You could hear it and, and you could recall it because it was, it was presented that way. So here we have, um, we have the declaration of, of reassurance, but it involves this, this uh, poetry that Isaiah delivers. Let's just read this section, uh, beginning of verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah saying, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Thus saith the Lord. This is official, formal, authoritative revelation. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. Now stop and think about that verse. God knew every single word that the Reb Shaka said about him. He knew the blasphemy that had been offered. He knew the intimidation that was being presented. God is not unaware but there was something about Hezekiah coming to the Lord in prayer that starts the process of God's action. One of the worst questions that, that I get, and, and I understand it, but, but it's a real misunderstanding of who God is. People say, well, if God knows everything, why do I have to pray? 
because God has given you not only the privilege of having access to the throne room of grace, but he's given you the responsibility of waging battle on behalf of what's true. And if we don't pray, often God doesn't act. Not because he can't, not because he doesn't know how, not because he's unaware, but because he is, has called us to have a responsibility, we learn here how to rule with Jesus in the heavenly places. We have to be engaged with spiritual battle, which means we have to learn how to use spiritual weapons. This is what the Lord God, the Lord, the God of Israel says, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. Now, listen to this, follow this poem because I want, I'll show it to you. He says, this is the word which the Lord has spoken against him. She, the virgin daughter of Zion, has shown contempt for you and mocked you. She, the daughter of Jerusalem, has shaken her head behind you. Now, right away, we start with, with this verse and you're like, okay, I'm already lost. Let, let me tell you what this verse means. When he talks about the virgin daughter of Zion the daughter of Jerusalem, those are phrases, descriptions that were commonplace back in the days of King David. The idea of, of, of Zion as a virgin daughter. See, King David was the king that set the standard for every other king that ever followed. He, was the, he led Israel really through the, her golden age. These phrases that God uses would have called Hezekiah's mind instantly back to the days of David. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Because it would have been a reminder that no opposing army had breached the security walls of Jerusalem since David had been king. What God is doing is he's, he's recalling his track record of protecting his people. This would have been an instant encouragement to Hezekiah to recall that, that uh, uh, there is an army on the horizon, but God has never allowed Jerusalem to be taken. In fact, Jerusalem won't be taken until the Babylonians show up another hundred years down the road, and the Babylonians will take Jerusalem because God ordained it. So he, he calls out these phrases that would have reminded him that Jerusalem had never been captured by an enemy since the time of King David. Verse 22, Whom have you taunted and blasphemed, and against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily raised your eyes? against the Holy One of Israel. The true target of Assyria's mocking is identified. They're not, he's not, the king of Syria is not mocking the people of Jerusalem. He's not mocking Hezekiah. He is mocking the Holy One of Israel. Let's make that clear so that everybody knows. Again, tremendous encouragement here because what does Hezekiah hear? He hears that God has taken these taunts personally. You want to talk about poking the bear. <laughs> Verse 23. 
Though your messengers, through your messengers, you have taunted the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I went up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choicest junipers, and I entered its farthest resting place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and with the soles of my feet, I dried up all the streams of Egypt. Now, what are these verses? He's basically reciting the boasts of the Assyrian king. I mean, look at what he says here. He says, I've gone to the, to the highest mountains and conquered there. I've gone to the remotest parts of Lebanon. I've cut down their trees. Nothing stands in my way. But my favorite part of this boast, he says, I've entered the farthest resting place, the thickest forest. I dug wells. I drank foreign waters. Now, that's a phrase of saying I, I've conquered. To drink foreign water is to conquer. But here's the best part. And with the soles of my feet, I dried up all the streams of Egypt. What do you think that means? It's a poetic way of reminding the king of a boast that he had made. That my army is so large. I have so many soldiers that when we march across a stream, we literally dry it up. We, 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 we pound, out, pound the water out of it. That's a, that's a poetic way of saying uh, that nothing stands in our way. We've marched through the streams until there was nothing left but, but the, 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 the remnants of mud that we left behind. Wow. Well, here's the kicker. Here's what the king of Assyria didn't know. Verse 25. Now, the, the verses we've just read, these are the words of the king of Assyria. They're being recited. Now, beginning in, verse 20, beginning in verse 25, these are the words that God is speaking to the king of Assyria. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it about that you would turn fortified cities into ruined heaps, Therefore, their inhabitants were powerless. They were shattered and put to shame. They were like the vegetation of the field and the green grass, like grass on the housetops that is scorched before it is grown. Huh. He says, Dear King Sennacherib, what you don't understand is you have not done one thing that I have not permitted you to do. God raises up nations and empires and he tears down nations and empires to suit his eternal purposes. Sennacherib's all proud of himself. We've conquered all these nations. We've defeated all these armies. We've thrown all these, uh, all these gods into our trophy case. And the God of, of Israel says, actually, I hate to break it to you, Sennacherib, but you haven't done one thing that I haven't allowed you to do. What's he saying? You see, all of those other gods, that, that recital of fallen nations and all, and where's this God, where's this God, where's that God? Every one of those nations were, uh, every one of the gods of those nations, they were typically understood to be geographical gods. They were tied to a, a, a spot of land. And they only held power within the boundaries of the land that worshipped them. And so for a king to sweep through and defeat a, a nation 
was to, in effect, defeat the God of that territory. But what does this poem say? The Holy One of Israel is not a territorial God. He's not a God of this patch of land. He is the God of the universe. And He raises nations and He topples them as He sees fit. King Sennacherib, you didn't do one thing that I didn't give you permission to do. Now look at this, verse 27. But I know you're sitting down, you're going out, you're coming in, and you're raging against me. There's not anything you've done that I'm unaware of. Because of your raging against me and because your complacency has come up to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way by which you came. Well, what's he saying here? I really like the title that I've given to this lesson. Blasphemy answered by sovereignty. That's what God is saying here. The Assyrians were known for their um, horrendous treatment of captured peoples. And one of the things that they would do, there are records of them putting, um, putting hooks through noses and, 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 and hooks through the skin of, of, of captured uh, citizens and as they were mar force marched back to be relocated uh, into another part of the empire it would be like uh, you know a, an Alabama prison chain gang only they would march hundreds of miles until they if they survived then they would be assimilated into the empire somewhere probably as slaves God uses language that the Assyrian king would have been very familiar with because that would have been the way he treated defeated peoples. God turns the table and said, I'm going to do to you what you've so often done to other people. It's shocking language. And frankly, I think in the Hebrew, it's even more stark. This idea of, um, of marching you back the way you came as a prisoner of war, essentially. Now, Here's where the story, I mean, I love this part about God, but, but here's where the story gets really in interesting, the judgment that's implemented. Verse, um, oh, let's, let's finish this part where he gives the, the, the um, reassurance. Verse 29, after the poem is finished, he says, Then this shall be the sign for you. He's talking now to Hezekiah. You will eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what grows by itself, and in the third year sow, harvest, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The survivors that are left of the house of Judah will, gain, will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go a remnant and survivors out of Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. In other words, there are going to be some difficult days immediately, but long term, uh, Jerusalem is going to be back where they, where they belong. I'm going to take care of my people. Verse 32, therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not come to this city, nor shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield, nor heap up an assault ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. 
See, God's answering Hezekiah's prayer that, that God would act on behalf of, of his holy name. But God throws this in. But also for, my, for the people that I love. For the sake of my servant David. And by extension, he means, he means the people of Judah. Now, here's the judgment. Verse 35. Then it happened. <laughs> you know, I... I I love that the Bible has, I both love it and hate it, frankly, that the Bible has such an economy of language. Because this entire battle is going to be described in one verse. I mean, it's just very matter-of-factly, straightforwardly described. I mean, I'm looking for a Cecil B. DeMille moment here. I mean, I want this played out. I want to see what happens. Um, God did it, first of all, under cover of darkness. Uh, nobody observed it, uh, but, but here's, here's what happens. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the rest got up early in the morning, behold, all of the 185,000 were dead. That's it. Notice he just sent one angel. Yeah, you know, one of the names of God that is one of my favorite names of God is Lord of Hosts. We sing that in modern terminology when we sing that song, uh, God of Angel Armies. That's what the Lord of Hosts is. It implies uh, the army of angels. Jesus mentioned that there's no shortage of angels that could come and, 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 and rescue me before I go to the cross, but that's not the plan. The, the, the implication is there's lots of angels. We don't know how many, but there's a lot. But here he just needed one. He sent the angel of the Lord, struck 185,000, when the rest of them, see, I don't even know what the total number of people in the camp were, that there was anybody left to, 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 to sneak back to Assyria after 185,000 were found to be dead. But that's what happened. 185,000 dead. Verse 36. <laughs> Again, economy of language. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Now that is an interesting um, way of writing in Hebrew because it's, in, in English it's redundant. He departed and he returned home and he lived at Nineveh. Basically, when Hebrew does that, when it piles the same basic idea on top of each other, um, it, there is no, um, there, there's not a, a comparative and superlative uh, idea in the Hebrew language. If, if something is, is doubled, that means it's, it's, you know, if you're holy, holy, then you're holier. If you're holy, 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 which is what they sing about God in heaven, holy, holy, holy means holiest. That's the superlative. You get to the superlative by, by having three, saying the same thing three times. The comparative, you say it twice. Well, here he departed and he returned home and he lived at Nineveh. It's a Hebrew way of saying he got out of Dodge in a hurry. He didn't just take his time. He didn't just sort of meander on back. He faced the God of angel armies 
And he left the very next day with everybody that could move. Now, I really do wish there was more to that battle than, than we have, but, but it's, it's pretty impressive. Now, before we read the end of the chapter, flashback to chapter, to verse 7. Remember, we read this. God says, Behold, I am going to put a spirit in him so that he will hear news and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Okay, well, here we go. We see that he departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. About 20 years passes between verse 36 and verse 37. Notice, you remember I told you there were two walls fill, filled with drawings and paintings related to his conquest at Lachish? Scholars in all of their self-described brilliance often argue that this encounter with Hezekiah never happened. You know why they say that? Because they can't find any evidence in the Syrian ruins of that defeat. You want to know why? Because kings didn't put pictures on the walls of their defeats. <laughs> then it came about, 20 years go by, then it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat, and his son Esarhaddon became king in his place. Now, um, just so that you know who uh, Adremelech and, and, and Sherezer are, let's go over to the parallel. In even more economy of language, the chronicler in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, uh, he covers this entire chapter that we've just been in in 2 Kings. He covers this entire chapter in like four verses. Here's what he says. 2 Chronicles chapter 32 beginning in verse 20. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and called out to heaven for help. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own sons killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and valuable presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So thereafter he rose in the sight of all nations. The killers, the assassins of Sennacherib were his own sons. Historically, Esarhaddon was the third son, the youngest son. And for whatever family um, drama they had in the royal family, um, Sennacherib bypassed his first two sons and designated his youngest son as his royal successor. Well, if you're an extra prince, especially if you're an extra prince that, had, uh, that, had, that feels like the throne belonged to you, their response was they found daddy in the temple of his God and they executed him. And then they ran away. 
it doesn't matter historically that much to us except that even with 20 years passage of time the judgment on Sennacherib played out exactly the way God said it would why because he raises up nations and he tears down empires as he sees fit and so there is a divine plan here in the Chronicles account, it says that all, not just Sennacherib, but all of Hezekiah's enemies were defeated, that God gave Hezekiah rest and peace on all sides. But then I love this. The esteem for Hezekiah as a king was elevated in all of the surrounding nations because they honored him as the one who survived and defeated Assyria. But what was really happening, we know, he was elevated by the will of God because God honored Hezekiah because Hezekiah honored God. The New Testament tells us that we should pray for those who are in authority over us. Paul says in, uh, in, in 1 Timothy that we should pray specifically that they would lead the nation in such a way that it allows us to have a life of quiet godliness. Let's go fight the culture war, but let's fight the culture war. for Let's see it for what it is, a spiritual war, and let's fight it with spiritual weapons. And our motivation is not so that we'll have it easy. Our motivation is that we can see God's name honored, rightfully so, and that we'll be allowed to live lives of quiet godliness. In other words, to chase hard after Jesus with no interference from those who are supposed to be protecting our right to do that. Um, don't miss Truth Currents on Friday. <laughs> Father, thank you so much. Hezekiah is a, a real hero in this story, but he's a hero because he rested and trusted in you. Father, let us draw from that the model for how we are to face the crisis that, that is in our generation, in our culture. Father, I pray that, that, that you would act among your people, that we would do spiritual battle with spiritual weapons so that your name would be rightfully glorified. And Father, I pray that you would do something mighty in our lifetimes so that the world will know that there is one true God, and His name is Yahweh, and He has come to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, find here a people whose hearts are completely yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.